Good morning. I should uh, begin by letting you all know that I have uh, a tendency to overwork um, and overfunction. I overcommit and I'm perfectionistic. Um, I can't even take a vacation without trying to make it as productive as possible. <laughs> My family and I took a road trip for a couple of weeks recently and I tried to pack in as much as possible. We ended up seeing as many people as there were number of days on our trip, even though in the middle of it, we set aside three days to leave our kids with the grandparents to go off on our own. My wife really wanted to go off into nature, maybe to do some hiking or canoeing, and so the suggestion I had was to climb up to the top of Mount Katahdin in Maine. It's the tallest peak in Maine. It's quite strenuous. It's the start or the end of the Appalachian Trail, however you're doing it. Now, you have to understand that my wife and I are not experienced or serious hikers. And we heard about a lot of people who go on Katahdin, they'll climb up to the peak to start the Appalachian Trail, which is like 2,000 some odd miles long. It ends in Georgia. So they'll get to the top, they'll walk down, and then they'll just get back in their car and go home. That, that, that scratched their itch for them. And there's a mile or so long stretch of that trail that they call the knife's edge, right? Very pleasant sounding, right? And it's along the ridge of the mountain. It's very jagged and rocky. It's pretty narrow in parts, and there's a long drop-off of like hundreds of feet on either side of you. I may have a photo. There we are. There's my wife looking very relaxed and comfortable on our vacation that I helped plan for us. <laughs> So by the time we got home, my whole family was very eager to rest and relax after having the exhausting experience of going on a vacation with me. And I do this all the time. I can't even rest or relax at home with, without feeling angsty about work that I feel like I ought to be doing. I always feel like anytime I'm resting that I'm actually being lazy or procrastinating from what I really ought to be doing. And I, and I say all this to frame the topic that I felt called to discuss this morning, and that's Sabbath. <laughs> so if you're looking for tips on how to practice Sabbath from an expert Sabbath keeper, someone who just knocks it out of the park week in and week out, really has this whole resting thing down, I'm sorry to disappoint you. But... Nevertheless, I have found my own imperfect striving towards Sabbath keeping to be extremely healing and life-giving. And so that's what I'd love to share with you, how Sabbath has been a gift for me even though I struggle to receive it. Our scripture passage comes from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15, which has this good news for us. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male or female slave or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the resident alien in your towns, so that your male and female slave may rest as well as you. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Let us pray. 
Come, Holy Spirit, form us into a Sabbathing people that we might grow increasingly aware of your nearness to us as you draw us ever closer in touch with our deepest, truest selves. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing to you in your holy name. Amen. The scripture text we just read is part of the presentation of the Ten Commandments given to the Israelites shortly after their liberation from slavery in Egypt. The Sabbath is often seen as the central commandment of the Ten, perhaps the most important of them all. Karl Barth says that the Sabbath commandment explains all the others, in large part because it frames the commandments not as a prescribed list of rules, but a description of life under God's grace. It's a description of a celebration rather than a a required task, a prepared rejoicing rather than care and toil, a freedom to allow God's grace to have the first and the last word in all that we do from beginning to end and everywhere in between. The commandments are ultimately about the establishment of a special relationship between God and the Israelites. It's a covenant not too different from the way that wedding vows establish a marriage. They they articulate a new way of life, a new identity for this group of people who had been freed from slavery after hundreds of years of oppression. Their way of life, their understanding of themselves and their status and value had been dictated by Pharaoh, the one who was exploiting them for their labor, the one who, when they asked for a day of rest to go and worship their God, punished them with harder work. But now the Israelites were wandering into an unknown space, returning to their homeland, and they had to let go of their former selves their former sense of identity and their former sense of status and self-worth in order to receive the gift of a new identity from the grace of the God who liberated them. That's the recurring explanation over and over again for how the Israelites were to understand God and themselves in light of what God had done. The very opening statement from God on the commandment tablet is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. That description of God provides the basis for who God is, how they were supposed to treat one another, and how they were to understand themselves. Now, the Sabbath commandment is unique in this way among all the other commandments because it kind of captures multiple points of focus in one. So you can think of the, the first three commandments are all about our responsibility to God, right? You know, don't have other gods before me, no graven images, don't use the Lord's name in vain. And the final six are all about our responsibilities to others. You know, don't, you know, take care of your parents, don't lie or steal or kill or be unfaithful, don't envy. But the Sabbath kind of focuses on both of these realms simultaneously, God and neighbor. On the one hand, The Sabbath is about setting aside a day for the Lord to connect with God, to remember and to worship God. And on the other hand, the Sabbath also guides the way we treat others, because not only are we supposed to rest, but we are supposed to rest with others. And so we're to protect the rest of others, children, slaves, immigrants, and even animals, This commandment links activities we typically like to put in separate boxes, you know, the worship of God, justice, and self-care. 
but here they're all intermingled and woven together. They're inseparable from one another. The implications of the Sabbath as a means of justice for our neighbors only grew greater and more expansive in later biblical texts. In Deuteronomy 15, every seventh, seventh year was to be a Sabbathing year where all debts were to be forgiven. Slaves were to be made free and even given reparations to empower them to live into their new freedom. Exodus 23, every seventh year they were supposed to let the land rest by not sowing seeds. A regular demonstration that the value of the land was different from its maximum capacity to produce resources for the benefit of human extraction. Sabbath-keeping interwoven with ecological justice as a spiritual practice and way of life for God's people. Then there's, you know, what I call the super Sabbath, the year of Jubilee. Every seventh cycle of seven years, not only were debts to be forgiven and slaves freed and the land given rest, but any family that lost their ancestral land, usually due to financial ruin, would have that land restored back to them. The biblical vision for Sabbath-keeping was a grand social reset in the community. I think about this broader vision for Sabbath-keeping and its emphasis on justice when I wrestle with questions like, you know, what does it mean to practice Sabbath when you can't afford not to work seven days a week? What does it mean for those who can't work, who are laid off? What does it mean to set aside a day to rest from work denied? Anyone who's ever experienced being out of work or even those of us who spent the last year and a half with less work or fewer things to do may relate to my own experience that just not, simply not having work is not the same thing as resting. There is, in fact, a constant state of unrest from such a lack of stability and security. So my own reading of the biblical tradition would say that a Sabbathing community helps to support and affirm meaningful opportunities for others to serve some sort of calling or vocation. That may be a career or a job, but that may also be caring for children or aging parents. That may be school. It may be a season of recovery or rehabilitation. It could be something else entirely different. There's a task or work side of the rhythm of Sabbath rest that that whole rhythm is supposed to be a part of. And on the other extreme, for those who can't afford to take a break, a Sabbathing community would strive to ensure that living wages include regular opportunities for rest. I can remember as a teenager, I started living with a family of seven children and a single mother. That made me the eighth child. The mom worked three different jobs. She couldn't afford not to work seven days a week. There were days when it seemed like she didn't get any sleep at all. She almost never got a full night's sleep. She usually napped between shifts, cleaning warehouses at night, working at a restaurant during the day, tutoring Spanish here and there. Part of the vision for what it means to be a Sabbathing people is to be a community that thrives to ensure that no person, no divine image-bearing child of God can, can't afford to take off at least one day a week. According to Scripture, every single person, rich or poor, skilled or unskilled labor, there is not one person on this planet who lacks the sacred dignity and eternal value, giving them the right to rest at least once every week. 
And in order to rest, they have to be able to afford to do so. They need living wages. Protecting the wages of workers is a Sabbathing practice. It's a worshipful endeavor. There's an anonymous um, ancient Jewish teaching from before the time of Jesus that says to provide for the needs of another enables them to exercise the Sabbath and therefore ought to be considered a double observation of the Sabbath. Jesus himself does this when he performs healings and is okay with with hungry people plucking grains on the Sabbath. Because part of what the whole Sabbath thing means is to empower other people with the opportunity to experience rest and healing. Now, turning to myself (laughs) and what opportunities I afford myself, rest and healing, I struggle. And it's not that I can't afford to be unproductive one day a week. It's not due to circumstances beyond my own choosing. Nothing about my, nothing about what is going on around me other than the internal workings of my own soul. But what I found helpful about my imperfect attempts to practice the Sabbath is how it teaches me things about myself that I don't see or or perhaps that I don't want to see most of the time. So when I struggle to take a, a day of rest, I can examine why I feel anxious about the work that I could be doing and to dig a little bit deeper into my impulse to judge my own rest as laziness or procrastination. And what I often find is that Sabbath rest directly conflicts with some things that I've become too attached to. Sabbath rest can feel like a threat to my identity. It asks me to let go of things that I'm very, very attached to. It reminds me of a song from Sesame Street. I get most of my pearls of wisdom from children's television these days. (laughs) There's a song from Ernie. Uh, You know, he lives with Bert, he's fond of a rubber ducky he sings to in the bathtub. Well, there's a song where he wants to learn how to play the saxophone, but the ducky keeps getting in the way. The ducky keeps squeaking and squawking. And so the song goes, Ernie, you got to put down the ducky. Put down the ducky. You got to put down the ducky if you want to play the saxophone. This may seem silly and trite, But if you have young children, you know that there is nothing trite and insignificant about a special toy or a fuzzy blanket that they're attached to. And it's not easy to put down the things that we're attached to in order to receive the gift we truly want. So for me, my own ducky is being productive. It's work, it's achievement, it's success, it's it's this. It's not being perceived as lazy, it's being perceived as competent, it's doing something well, it's the need to feel important. That's my ducky that prevents me from playing Sabbath. It's not that those things I'm attached to are necessarily bad, just like there's nothing wrong with Ernie's rubber ducky. Work is good, goals and achievements are good, doing well is a good thing. Those can even be important parts of who I am. The problem is that it's not who I ultimately am. But I have a tendency to make these things the ultimate source of my identity and purpose. Like my value as a person depends on how well I do things or how much I get done. I totally get why I do this, too. I grew up really poor. My family didn't have a lot. I didn't finish middle school. I struggled as a young adult working low-wage jobs. I can remember about 17 years ago, I was working at Wendy's making $5.15 an hour. Sometimes I would just count the time. Every 10 seconds equaled about one and a half pennies. Every minute equaled about nine pennies. 
And I would think to myself, wow, that is all that my existence is worth. This slice of my time is worth a few pennies. My time on earth is short, and this is all its value is. So once I finally had the opportunity to attend college, I was determined to shape my identity around proving myself competent, hardworking, and high-achieving. No longer would I feel ashamed in the presence of others who had the opportunity to go to college, who seemed so smart. No longer would I feel flooded with shame every time someone corrected my grammar and made me, reminded me that I'm uneducated and that I come from poverty. And so I routinely overbooked my schedule, overcommitted to responsibilities, and agonized over everything I did to make it as close to perfect as I possibly could. For years, I developed extremely unhealthy work habits that continue to impact me to this day. But grace abounds. Given my background and where I come from, I totally get why I attached my self-worth and identity to my productivity. And I think God gets that even better than I do. But I also know that it's not the deepest, truest self that God created me to be. It's like I've allowed myself to develop roots in unhealthy soil, and the Sabbath invites me to uproot them, to replant my truest, deepest identity and sense of self-worth in the good soil of God's dynamic grace alone. That my value doesn't come from what I'm able to produce or achieve, but just simply because I'm loved by God. Our value isn't earned, it's received. None of us did anything to earn or achieve our very existence in this universe. God just freely ex gifted existence to each and every single one of us. God has also chosen just simply to love us fully and completely, regardless of and prior to our work and competence and accomplishments. The Sabbath provides space and time to remember this good news and to let go of those unhealthy attachments that get in the way, to release them. That's actually the Hebrew word in Deuteronomy. They call the Sabbath a day of releasing. And it's not just a day to abstain from these things, but a reminder to connect with God and to rest, to connect with God in the presence of others like we're doing right now, to rest perhaps by sharing meals or games with others, to recognize that my work is not as necessary as I think it is, that the world is going to go on just fine without it for at least a day, to give myself permission to play and to rest and trusting my value to the one who created, redeems, and sustains me. And like I said, this hasn't come easily or naturally to me. I, I've had to be very intentional about recognizing the habits and patterns that lead me to overwork or get anxious about my work, all to the detriment of my prayer life and being fully present to my loved ones. So for example, I've experimented with features on my smartphone. I started by turning off notifications to certain apps and when that didn't really work, I just ended up removing certain apps entirely, like social media and eventually even my email app. I mean, modern technology is great, but I felt like for me, my constant accessibility to the world distanced me from who and what was immediately around me. I've also gotten into the habit of setting time limits on tasks to mitigate my perfectionism. I've scheduled simple times of rest or prayer into my calendar to prevent myself from scheduling something productive in its place. 
These efforts to practice Sabbath have been deeply meaningful and healing to me, especially over the past couple of years. To be reshaped and reformed by receiving the gift of sacred moments with my complete and full attention. I've definitely experienced that in moments of worship or contemplative prayer, but also in moments where I just simply let myself set work aside, swimming with my children or taking a walk with my wife or a really good friend to talk about life or theology or politics. These are the moments that I truly cherish deep down in my bones, that I remember, that I carry with me, that really are a part of who I am. And this is what God invites me to lean into and experience more of through the Sabbath. So even if my practice of the Sabbath is imperfect, that's okay. I trust that God gets why it's such a struggle for me and that there's enough grace for me to struggle with it. What I found so healing has been the regular opportunity of getting to try it over again, week after week, to let go of the expectations of others, the expectations I impose on myself, and just simply to receive the gift of being grounded in God's gracious presence. So Sabbath is all about a rhythm of life, holding on to work at some moments and letting go of it at others. So I wanted to do a prayer practice with everyone to kind of embody this sense of a rhythm through a breathing prayer exercise. Breathing prayer is something that Christians have done for many centuries. And so if you're comfortable, I would invite you to close your eyes, to be in a posture of openness and receptivity to what God might have for you. You may even open the palms of your hand in your lap and just take some slow, steady breaths in and out. As you breathe out, you could imagine releasing from your body any work or task that might be waiting for you outside these doors to just let go of it, just for now, in this space. And as you breathe in, you might consider the air itself being full of the very presence of God, filling you with God's love and care, filling you with rest and peace, empowering you with what you need to breathe out again, to let go of those tasks or attachments, even if just for a moment. Amen. At this time, we'll transition to a time of worship along with communion and prayer. The worship team can come forward. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you wish to be fed by Jesus, you're welcome to participate in communion. There are stations in the front and back, and you're welcome to come individually or in groups, serving yourselves or one another. The tables in the front corners have individually packaged communion servings. The tables in the back have our traditional open loaves of bread for dipping into a common cup. And the table immediately next to the stage is gluten-free. At the tables, there are some cards with two suggested prayers that you might wish to try while receiving communion. Feel free to take one of those cards with you. Parents, you are also invited to pick up your kids from Kids Church at this time. Come as you are ready. <laughs> 